This is a CBC Podcast. So, the other day, I was listening to the radio, and they mentioned something about fossil fuels. And I had this moment where I was like, wow, do we really get our power from these ancient dinosaur bones? Isn't that kind of weird? So, I did some reading about it, and yes, we really do make fuels from fossils. Not necessarily dinosaurs, but super ancient dead things. That means that the process to turn on your bedside light started 4 billion years ago when a bunch of plants and animals died. All of that organic matter slowly got buried in the Earth's crust over time, and then just over 200 years ago, us savvy humans realized we could burn it for energy. So that's what coal, gas, and oil are. Fossils that we learned how to burn. And like, I'm sure you've heard about this thing called climate change. I actually already did an episode about it, but pretty much the problem is that all these fossil fuels have carbon in them. And when you burn them, a bunch of carbon dioxide comes out and absorbs sunlight that would otherwise bounce back into space. And now all that extra sunshine is heating up our planet and damaging our environment. Oh, and even if fossil fuels weren't doing all this terrible stuff, the truth is, we're running out of it. If we keep burning fossil fuels at our current rate, some people estimate that all our fossil fuels will be gone by 2060. Power and energy are kind of a big deal. Without it, literally nothing could function. So, it seems like we really need to move on from these fossils and figure something else out quick, but, like... Why haven't we solved this yet? How can we just do it better? What if we were to tear it all down and start over? How would we do it then? How else can we power our planet? Ty Asks Why I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are just so many good questions out there that you really, really just want to have answered. Stuff like, why are viruses so good at what they do? Is it possible to predict the future? What's the deal with screen time? Why do we dance? What's at the bottom of our ocean? And is there a better way to power the planet? Now, I really don't say this often, but... As it turns out, my little brother Kian knows way more than I do about where our power comes from. Yeah, in grade 5 we cover quite a lot about energy, reliable sources, unreliable sources, and how we're poisoning our home. Well, dude, I knew nothing. I thought there were little hamster wheels next to our light switches that powered them, so could you tell me about one of these reliable ways? I think the most commonly known better energy source is probably solar panels. Although the problem with solar panels and tons of other reliable sources, they cost a lot of money. Solar panels are expensive. Windmills are expensive. Hydroelectric dams are expensive. But like just burning oil, you have to mine the oil, but you don't have to like pay for the oil. You, you find the oil, it's yours. Open to burn. But is that it? 
Is it just that bad ways of getting power are cheap and good ways are expensive? Yeah, so we're working on that. This is Richard Randall. He works at Stanford University's Pre-Court Institute of Energy. I called him up to give me the rundown on what the best kinds of energy are and how we should use them. First of all, there's a reason that humanity likes using coal and gasoline and fossil fuels so much, which is that they're pretty cheap to get out of the ground and they have a huge amount of energy in a really small area. And that means you can store a whole lot of this stuff and you can burn it whenever you want. Now, the challenge with clean electricity is that the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time. So solar and wind alone, they're really important and we need to build way more of them. And that's a process that's already going on. But those alone won't be enough because you need to have electricity all the time whenever I flip the switch, even if it's in the middle of the night and my solar panels aren't doing anything. And so there are a couple of different ways you can do this. So there are things like hydrogen that you can burn in a power plant, and that doesn't generate any carbon dioxide. That's something we're looking at. We're looking at, all right, so maybe there's not a totally different fuel that you can use to replace fossil fuels, but maybe you can just take the energy from the sun or the wind and store it until you really need it. So you can do that with big batteries, or maybe there really are ways to generate electricity whenever you want it with no fossil fuels involved. And two examples of how to do that are nuclear power or hydroelectric dams. Hold on a second. When I hear nuclear, I automatically think of some bad things like the Chernobyl disaster, radioactive goop, and that three-eyed fish from The Simpsons. <laughs> All right, we need to light. Nuclear doesn't seem to have a great reputation. I went to Keen and he told me all about it. If you had a big nuclear factory, you could cause an explosion bigger than like a, like a military-grade nuke. And the worst part is you'd be killing so many people. It's just too risky. And it's also, it's also not great for the planet because nukes, the energy they use, I'm pretty sure it's like pretty bad. It's like oils or something. I don't know. And it's just too risky. I, I, don't, I don't like nuclear power. But Richard says that nuclear doesn't deserve the hate. There's a big gap between what most people think of when they think nuclear, which is Chernobyl and the episode of The Simpsons with the mutant frogs and things like that. But on the other hand, there have really only been a handful of these catastrophic nuclear accidents in the history of nuclear power. And if you add up the number of people who have been harmed by disasters like Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or something like that, it's so much smaller than the number of people who are harmed by lung diseases from being near coal plants or from being involved in coal production or from being near petroleum refineries or all of these fossil fuel intensive industries that can also give people cancer or lung diseases. But for some reason, nuclear is the one that gets the bad rap. It's not true to say that it's perfectly safe. There have been these accidents, there have been these risks where despite our best laid plans, things have gone wrong. And nobody can truthfully tell you that a nuclear plant is safer than a solar panel. But with the suite of technologies we have right now, nuclear really is one of our best options for making electricity when the sun doesn't shine or when the wind's not blowing. It seems like the methods that we have now 
they all have like their upsides and their downsides, right? You know, like solar and wind, you know, they're clean, but they're not always available. Fossil fuels are give you a lot, but they're not great. And nuclear, you know, three-eyed fish, which I'm down for a third eye, but you know, that might be a little weird. So do you think we'll ever be able to make some sort of like good energy, like a perfect energy that just doesn't have a downside, it's just energy? You know, that's a great question. And if that perfect energy source already existed, we would be using all of it already. And I personally think the answer is no, there probably won't be a perfect energy source. And there certainly won't be in time for us to deal with global warming. So we have to work with all of these imperfect power sources that we've got. And Richard says the key is going to be using all of them. So essentially the way this will work in the future is that we'll have a huge menu of different technologies that we can choose from. So you'll have a whole bunch of solar for when it's sunny. You'll have a whole bunch of wind for the nighttime. You'll have hydroelectric dams or batteries or something like that for when neither of those are working. And a really diverse power grid with tons and tons of different types of sources will always be more reliable than something that relies only on the sun or only on the wind. Okay, so I like this vision of the future. If we need to have lots of ways of making power, then we can get power from everything around us. And I mean, once you start thinking about it, there really are power sources everywhere. My friends, as usual, have some pretty rad ideas. You know, I was always thinking, how come we don't use lightning energy? Like, stick like a metal <laughs> rod up in the middle of a field, and that would be great. Okay, that's actually a really smart idea. You should invent that. They also replace, like, sidewalks all the time, right? So why don't they just put solar panels, like, durable solar panels on the sidewalk? I've seen images of technology where if you walk on something, it creates a very small, uh, a, a tiny bit of energy. If we had that everywhere, it wouldn't be enough energy, to, like, to power a city. But it, it might power, like, 10% or something like that. I started doing some research in all these weird and wacky ways of making power, and there are a lot of cool ones out there. Like, in Sweden, they're using body heat generated by commuters at a subway station to power a nearby office building. That is crazy. Or, in the Netherlands, there's a nightclub that's using floor vibrations from people walking and dancing to power a light show. What? And then, I find out that there are some people that are even using poop as a power source? What? Everyone should give a poop about poop. Everyone should give a crap about poop. <laughs> this is Daniel Deba. He's a research associate with the Stockholm Environment Institute. And his specialty is figuring out how to turn waste, like poop, into useful stuff, like power. At its core, poop is essentially just a collection of... Uh, biodegradable materials that are combustible because remember what is in poop it's essentially uh, food that we ate that has gone through different kinds of uh, processes in our body and then it ends up on the other side mm -hmm, because you know when your body eats things it takes the nutrients and everything that it needs and the things that it doesn't need gets expelled and that's what poop is right but that doesn't necessarily mean that the things in the poop aren't useful, they just weren't useful for you when it was in your stomach. Exactly. Uh, and I might also add that sometimes what we take in is more than what our body needs. 
Uh, I myself sometimes am guilty of eating much more than uh, my body really needs. And so sometimes you find that a lot of what we have in poop is the excess uh, beyond what our bodies really needed. And so this excess goodness in our poop can actually be really useful. It's not just crap. Uh, researchers in Switzerland discovered that uh, a huge valuable amount of uh, precious metals that silver, gold and others could be obtained from the wastewater treatment systems because every time people go to the bathroom, every time they take a shower, every time they take a poop, some of these are washed off from all their jewelry and all this. So this can also be uh, recovered to some extent. What? Our poop can turn into gold? That's amazing. And Daniel says poop is also a golden opportunity for making fuel. It makes sense. Poop is everywhere. You don't have to dig mines or cut down trees or anything to get it. Everybody poops. But I still don't quite get how poop turns into power. There is mainly two ways to generate energy out of poop through making biogas, so it can be burned, but it can also be turned into electricity, and then that can be connected to the electricity grid. The other approach to making energy out of poop is through making them into solid fuels. Moisture content can be dried uh, through different approaches, and when it is dried, it can be burned either through a boiler or through some kind of furnace or a kiln, and the energy that is generated from that combustion process can then be used in different appliances. Whoa, so cool. So either we can take the gas from the poop and burn that as biogas in a combustion engine, or dry the poop out and burn it like a piece of coal. Apparently, biogas is already being used in cities around the world, even in the US and here, Canada. It's really popular on farms as a way to deal with cow poop. Which actually makes sense because the methane and the CO2 would be released anyway, so now it's just being put to good use. And as a source of energy, using biogas releases less bad stuff into the atmosphere compared to fossil fuels. Seems kind of great, but I had to ask. Wouldn't that stink? Because, like, you know, I know that poop kind of smells, so wouldn't this smell too? Actually, not always. Uh, we conducted a study uh, in Kampala a few years ago to try to understand the viability of if fecal sludge or poop could indeed be used uh, as a solid fuel in small-scale industries. And while we were conducting those experiments, we found that there was no significant smell uh, that came from using the fecal sludge, apart from the typical smell of burning, you know, the kind of smoky uh, kind of smell. But there was nothing that you could smell and say, hmm, I think they're using poop in this area. I know, I know, I get it. It's hard to hear the words fecal sludge and not get a bit grossed out, but I'm going to take his word for it that it actually doesn't smell that bad when it's being processed. Daniel says that we all just have to get over this squeamishness about poop. We all do it, it's no big deal, and this poop power thing seems like such a smart idea. So, I decided to help spread the good word, starting with my brother. As you know, if you leave one of your floaters in the toilet for a little bit too long, they'll start to make some odors, right? Please stop talking. But 
there's little bacteria that are, you know, digesting the poop and it makes something called biogas. And this biogas can actually be used as energy. It's kind of like, you know, the fuels that we have now, except it's more sustainable and well, we have poop everywhere. I poop. Do you poop? Yes, I poop. That's pretty cool. I I respect that. So basically, you wait for the poop to kind of go off and mold, and then you get the disgusting, smelly gases, and you throw them in a furnace? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily mold, but it's using the biological parts of the poop and letting them make things that we could use for energy. I'm on board. This is where we're going in the future. We started off putting our feet on the moon, but now we're putting poop in our lights. This is, this is the future. Again, I rarely say this, but I think Ken's right. I think the future of energy is going to mean getting creative with what we have. If you live in a sunny spot, boom, use lots of solar. If you got these crazy waterfalls nearby, use those to generate electricity. And if you got a ton of people around pooping up a storm, put that to use too. But this got me thinking further into the future, like beyond my generation beyond planet Earth, even. What if we were to try to get power on Mars? There really is only one person to ask about that. Hey, Ty, how you doing? I'm doing good, honestly. I've, it's very scary, my heart's uh, pumping to talk to you. Well, it shouldn't be. You know, our scientists and NASA are really reachable. So, you know, kind of chill, no big deal, but I did call up the chief scientist of NASA to help me figure that out. His name is Jim Green, and he's really, really smart. He spends a lot of time thinking about our future in space, and he says power is going to play a big part in that. As we live and work on the moon and then go to Mars, new technologies will come up. And and the key is we're going to be watching those. Uh, We're going to want to be able to take advantage of those and then implement them. The power systems are an exciting part of NASA and what we do, and it has a big future as uh, humans leave low Earth orbit and go out into space, into the solar system to live and work. So, I know it might sound a little shocking the way he's talking about us all working in space in the future, like that's inevitable, but... It really isn't such a stretch. As NASA finds out more and more about Mars, it seems like we could make it kind of livable. Curiosity has been running on the surface of Mars. That's one of NASA's big rovers for several years. It landed in 2012. It's measured all kinds of things in the soils. It's measured carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. Perfect set of material just the right kind of stuff that uh, is needed like we have here on earth and then there's nitrates in the soil that's what we call fertilizer here on earth and the atmosphere is humid which means that the water that exists is either frozen or it's in light vapor form that has enabled it to circulate within the atmosphere of mars That's also perfect for a variety of plants to be able to use the nitrogen, the nitrates in the the soils, and also the water in the air. So Mars has got a lot going for it. So let's say that we were able to try to 
jumpstart Mars, you know, get water flowing, get the atmosphere back. And let's just say we tried to turn Mars into like Earth 2.0, but kind of Earth. How would we power that? Well, we would initially use the two basic types, which would be solar power and nuclear power, you know, power that we need all the time uh, to power all our equipment, all our batteries we would have in different uh, locations. The cars, the transportation that we would use would be electric. I mean, when you think about the electric car revolution that's occurring here on Earth, we just take that same kind of technology and move it to Mars. So we wouldn't use the hydrocarbon fuels that we use today. We would be already using these alternate sources of energy. So just like Earth, Mars is going to need multiple sources of energy too, even nuclear, who knew? But apparently the big one up there is gonna be water. Now, water is a fantastic resource. Water is water. Whether we find it on the moon or find it on Mars, the chemical composition is still the same. It's hydrogen and two oxygens. We can drink it and we can bust it apart. We can take off a hydrogen. And then we have O2, uh, two oxygens that are connected together. And actually, that's what we breathe. So we can disassociate the water and create an atmosphere. That's important. In fact, we can disassociate the oxygen from the hydrogen and create rocket fuel. So from one resource, we can drink it, we can breathe it, and we can use it as fuel. Uh, it, you know, it's pretty important to us. But on Mars, there's all kinds of other materials that we are going to be using. NASA also has a ton of other research happening that can help us here on Earth. Give you a perfect example. On space station, humans breathe oxygen, they breathe out CO2. And if we don't take CO2 out of the atmosphere of space station, then they will all die. And so we do that every day. So we have to think about perhaps techniques that we could use that not only decrease the CO2 that we generate, but also take it out of the atmosphere if we put it in. Removing CO2 from the Earth's atmosphere the way NASA does in space is going to take a lot of time. I mean, the Earth is a lot bigger than a space station. So, until we get that up and running, we've got to solve our own power problems down here on Earth using everything we've got now. Renewable energy it is getting a lot cheaper, but I guess the world would have to be powered by a lot of different things. Like yeah. it would be kind of like a mishmash of different things. It would be kind of interesting. Maybe if we just have a mishmash of all these different types of renewable energies, we can just kind of piece together enough power to power the world. Yeah. I don't think but. there's any way the whole world will just suddenly be like, let's all convert to this one energy source. We're going to need all the solar and wind and poop and lightning and super sidewalks we can get so we can transition away from fossil fuels while keeping our lights on. Ty asks why. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Ty Pool. This show is produced by Amanda Buckowitz and Judy D. Goo. Judy's also our digital producer. 
This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons, and she is also our editor and sound designer. The theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my dad, Min Nguyen, and our location manager is my mom, Nikki Poole. Thanks, guys, for stepping in to help out during our pandemic. Today, my guests were Richard Randall, Daniel Deba, and Jim Green. Special thanks to Austin Pomeroy, my baby bro, Kian, and my friends Zoe, Piper, Finn, and Caden. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arv Narani. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. And turn off your lights when you leave a room. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.